Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to The Shapes of Stories, a podcast with me, Lawrence Prestige, as your host. Stories come in all shapes and sizes, whether it be from our favourite books, our life experiences, or the day-to-day challenges and issues we face in the world today. Hello and welcome to another episode of the, well, another series of the Shapes of Stories podcast with me, Lawrence Prestige. And, and yeah, it's been nice to have a little break from the podcasting. Um, yeah, you know, I've managed to um, get up to date with some writing that I've been working on and some new projects, which I'm excited to share with you, um, uh, you know, in the weeks ahead. Hopefully I'll have more to tell you about that soon. Um, but yes, here we are with another series of The Shapes of Stories and uh, a third series. Like I can't really believe where the, where the time goes, to be honest. It feels just, it only feels a couple of weeks ago I was talking to Donald Stoic in the first episode. But yet here we are, and uh, what a way to kick off the uh, third series with none other than Rob Rinder. And obviously, you know, I, I guess most of us know know him as Judge Rinder on the popular um, TV show, um, an ITV, Judge Rinder, which I'm a, a big fan of, I must say. And uh, we do talk about that, we talk about the show, how it all came about, um, you know, some of the episodes in particular, and uh, yeah, really interesting um, to hear about that. We talk about other things as well. You know, Rob um, was obviously on Strictly Come Dancing. Um, you know, he had Michael McIntyre disturb him, disturb him and come into his house in the dead of night for his TV show. We talk about that. And we talk about some heavy subjects as well. You know, um, Rob talks about um, going through a spell of depression himself. He talks about um, his battle with COVID, which I didn't know that he had, but he um, had COVID last year, and he talks about how he dealt with that, and you know, and um, and how 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 that all came about, and um, and he also talks about uh, a topic and subject that's, that's very close to him and, and um, his family history with the Holocaust, and um, there was that really interesting program, Who Do You Think You Are, where we saw um, Rob sort of visiting the sites where his grandfather was a prisoner, you know, it's the only way we can um, describe it. And um, yeah, just really interesting. I learned learned a lot from talking to Rob and he's one of those people that when he talks, you you, you listen. <laughs> and um, yeah, you know, he, he was great to talk to and um, I'm really excited to share this episode with you. Um, he was running a little late actually and <laughs> he was horrified that he was running late. I, you know, he, I knew he was running late, but you know, I got told he was running late, but I, he was, um, <laughs> he was horrified about being late, but it wasn't a problem at all. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was quite, um, amusing to how, you know, he, how, you know, uh, persistent he was at, um, wanting to apologize you know and about uh about being late but um it was really great having rob on um be sure to check us out on social media before we start you can follow us on twitter at shapes of stories just at shapes of stories you can follow me on instagram under prestige books and on my facebook page lawrence prestige uh, you can follow us also on our facebook page for the podcast which is the shapes of stories but uh, here he is. I'll just uh, lead you into when he's running slightly late and he's just uh, entered the room. <laughs> is uh, my chat with the wonderful Rob Rinder.
It's I, I half an hour late. Oh, oh no, don't worry. Well, well, I mean, we're talking about manners as well. I suppose, like, <laughs> when I've watched, you know, your your show on TV and some of the people you get in there, I I get a bit shocked by how some of them just behave with their mannerisms and their, you know, the, not doing themselves any favors from the get go. I feel sometimes. Does that shock you when people are just kind of that arrogant about it? I suppose. I'm totally unshockable. Okay. I mean, I really think, and I think that's learned. I, I think you either, you've got a predisposition. I, you know, grew up in a in a family where there was, uh, you know, it was a, a, a loving, unconditionally loving family, which of course is the ultimate privilege, but where people meant what they said and said what they meant, mm-hmm. um, and then practiced, you know, law um, for uh, close to now for two decades, but you know, over a decade of dealing with serious cases, including murder cases, um, saw a good deal of the evidence in international criminal cases, including genocide. And after a while, you become inured to people's behaviour and that sort of thing. Very often, the type of behaviour you're talking about is are forms of emotional display. And which is a slightly overblown way of describing people get really angry. Mm -hmm. And in some some of the cases that you're referring to it'll be the first time that a family member uh will have seen the other person that's caused them real pain for a really long time and they may not have uh the emotional range they may not be as articulate as you and me but they're really cross (laughs) really angry and that anger isn't directed at me it's because every single fibre of their being is triggered by seeing that other person and the pain that they've been caused. And actually, I understand sometimes people perhaps uh, uh, have concerns about my show and, and have expressed them. They never do when they watch it regularly or come and watch it live, because what I'm trying to do is never to send anybody up. Um, I'm not just mindful. The centre of it all is the dignity of all the parties. Mm-hmm. But to provide the person you're talking about with a chance to be forced to hear the other person and ultimately them to hear each other, which is different from listening. Yeah. And you've got to, you know, the Lord or whomever evolution gave us two ears and one gob for a reason. Mm-hmm. And it often changes the entire complexion of the conversation. So they might be really angry at the beginning. And by the end of that time together, if they've taken the gift, the chance to hear how upset their actions have made the other person and vice versa, it genuinely has the power to transform that situation. It's never or rarely about the content of the money or the, the dispute. Of course, that matters. It's about all of the kind of emotional complexion, all of the other issues that that money, that that breakdown in trust has represented. And that's why they're really angry. And it's true, regardless of your background, who you are, that's what happens. You get really... Yeah. Do you feel that um, tension sometimes when you walk in, like between the two people can you feel that sometimes yeah yeah but there's never a moment when I shut the door and think would this be funny for telly yeah Lawrence you remember that um I take every case deeply seriously whether it's Mm -hmm. a case about a a shitting goat um (laughs) the dog weddings as well (laughs) the dog wedding uh, yeah yeah, a lasso actor and a randy shih tzu wasn't it yeah Yeah. (laughs) um I'm more about that in a second um but in a case, in a day, we'll have eight cases, let's say. Two of them might be those, you know, silly ones on the face of it. Although silly ones can be the most difficult legally. <laughs> really very difficult. Um, and six of them will be 
exactly as I've described, you know, families in crisis, people who've broken down years of um, a challenging relationship, often through a history of personal abuse, often through substance abuse, often in addiction, in all sorts of crisis situations, loss of homes, you know, toxic breakdown involving custody, etc. And you'll only see 10 minutes, perhaps, yeah. of a case that lasted an hour, and I have to give full judgment. So there's never a moment when the door slams behind, slams behind me when I'm doing the Judge Rinder show, um, that I'm doing the Judge Rinder show. It's a court case. Hmm. Um, and I care profoundly about that. I think part of the reason I haven't been eviscerated by my colleagues, other than the fact that I did serious work, I was fairly well respected before ending up in this odd situation I find myself in on Judge Rinder. Um, I care passionately about the integrity of the law and of the court. Um, and I'm mindful more than anything else, and not just mindful model, the fact that every single person gets treated with dignity. And from time to time, that course might involve me going, oh, you're stupid or something like that. But <laughs> anybody needs to be aware that I would say the same thing, and I used to say the same thing to my extremely well-paying oligarch clients. Or when I was doing international cases, you know, there's uh, you don't get treated different by me by virtue of, you know, the size of what's in your wallet mm -hmm. what what matters in life is what you do not who you are um, yeah. but yes that's a long answer to you of course you can hear the tension sometimes and the first job when you get in there is just to remind them not that they're in court I never do that it's a bit you don't see in camera I do five minutes often it's a shame we're not filming at the moment I say look forget that silly camera for there and of course I always speak to the audience myself yeah. talk about dig dignity we prepare the audience i do and then uh, the first three four five minutes is this is a chance and i'll i'll say you know what do you want from this Th these are the issues of the case you're here to sue john because um uh, uh, uh he promised he borrowed money from you for 20-year friendship it's three and a half thousand pounds he promised to pay you back and hasn't mm -hmm. during that time uh, your partner got cancer you saw that uh, the defendant had gone on holiday three times. Knowing what struggles you'd been to, what did that do to you? Mm -hmm. And we can start there, because it'd be the first time the defendant will have heard the impact of what's happened. And that defendant might also have a valid claim to why he's taken that money. Yeah. And just that opportunity of being forced to hear one another can have a radical transformative effect. I think it matters. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, your show. I, I think I feel I feel different emotions when I watch your show. Sometimes I do laugh. Sometimes I get upset. Right. Sometimes I can get angry. Like I, I remember watching the, the one episode where the, you know, the dad had he had quite a lot of kids, and there was the son that drew the wonderful art. Oh, picture. Wasn't it wonderful! I was yeah, wonderful. And uh, yeah, but that episode made me really angry. Do you do you kind of like um, hear about how they, what happens sort of post the show mm -hmm. as well? Sometimes that was, and that's yeah. such a good, do you know, I've never been asked that question, Lawrence, it's a good question. Um, especially lovely question because, you know, so often at the moment we reflect on, not so often at the moment, it's a fundamental human nature and, and one that's been dialed up because of the nefarious presence of social media. We're so focused on, you know, the negative things people do and um, conflict. We forget that every day, there are 
a, a, a million, no, no, more. For every one negative thing somebody does, there are a, a however many thousand people showing up to be frontline NHS workers, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a really long throat clearing to tell you that often in my programs, things like the one you're referring to, the, the, the case you're referring to, um, innumerable people phone to offer that boy help. And in one case, somebody phoned to offer to pay for his entire arts education. Amazing. And did. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, it's beautiful. We don't hear about that, though. Oh, who wants to hear the good news? Well, that's the thing, yes. yeah. Right. And that, that, I mean, yeah, I feel really strongly about it. One thing you did refer to, because of that, the dog wedding and stuff, the cases oh, yeah. that make you laugh. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, in the morning I get my cases and I think, oh, you know, really? And um, I hope we'll come on to how the, the show is produced. It's very, you know, some of the, sometimes it's amusing. They might not tell me things. Right. But I, I, treat every case just as I would if I were dealing with an international war crime, right? Uh, the integrity of the law really matters. The documents have to be perfect. There's somebody in my ear, but they're not allowed to say anything that would interfere with the integrity of the judgment. So they can say something's happening. Or, um, now, I'll come on in a second, I hope, to, to talk about like, some of the silly cases. But the first case I did on Judge Rinder, I'd come from dealing with an international dispute where I was advising the um, chief legal officer, a bit like the attorney general of Jersey. And before that, a uh, appearing for the government, freezing the assets of the ex-prime minister worth billions of pounds. And first case I dealt with was a wedding photographer who was suing, excuse me, being sued by a woman. And I said, oh, thank you very much for coming. And, um, and thanks especially for bringing your mum. That's my sister. <laughs> You know, case number two, I said one of the most stupid things I'd ever said. Um, I said, oh, this case is worth 80 pounds. That's not very much money, say I. And the woman who runs my show, she's a boss. She's, um, she's, she's from Wolverhampton. And I think she sort of makes, um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher seemed like Julie Andrews, type of person I absolutely yeah. love. So she very loudly coughs on me. Do you want to rephrase that? You sound like a right tosh dickhead. That's what she said. And of course she was right. And from there I learned a great deal. And I hope more about that in due course. But some of the dumb cases that you think are so dumb, I'll read and I go, okay, right, it's this. They are eye-wateringly legally difficult. Mm-hmm. Right. So let me give you an example. I'll ask you, throw it back to you. Right. Imagine that you're in a when you could go to, I don't know, anywhere. Yeah. You're in a railway, one of those horrible railway cafes somewhere that they still vaguely have. They're all they're generic, aren't they? And um, you're with your friend and you open up a ginger beer bottle. Why you're drinking ginger beer, I don't know, but let's just imagine it. <laughs> yeah, okay. And you pour out that ginger beer bottle and out of it comes a masticated snail. Um, comes a, a masticated snail. Yeah. And... Um, your friend has an attack of the vapors and that you know it's so shocked by this masticated it's so shocked by this masticated snail yeah that um he passes out um who, who can he sue i mean you you'd think it i guess it'd be the people that are in charge of the sort of the uh, products and who putting it out and stuff no would it be the railway? Go, go, go on. Would it? Would it? Would it be the yeah, ca- railway cafe itself? Yeah. 
I mean, or, or what, was your, what was your first point? I mean, I realise I'm testing you at the same time as trying to get this to work. Well, yeah, well, I, yeah, I guess the, you know, the, um, the people, the ginger beer sort of company that product it, though. Right, you're, so, so I don't know whether you've got a background in law, but um, no, you're, no. you're absolutely, <laughs> uh, okay, but you're absolutely right, yeah. But, but the reason I ask you that question is because that's one of the most important cases of the 20th century. And it's a case called Donahue and Stevenson, and it's law in India, Australia, New Zealand, America, the, the, the whole of the common law world. Because before that time, unless you had a contract with somebody, you couldn't sue anyone for, for product liability, in effect. Mm-hmm. It's not quite product liability. You, you couldn't sue somebody if they had um, it's called a tortious claim. You couldn't sue somebody in tort. Are you, you've done something to me, um, but I have a contract with you. So what's, my, what's your responsibility as a manufacturer to me? Now, that's a case about manufactured, excuse me, that's a case about a masticated snail that ended up in the House of Lords in the 1930s. And uh, the opening of the um, judgment from the House of Lords, which is now the Supreme Court, about a masticated snail is, who is my neighbour? And there's a long tome, a philosophical tome about the principle of what obligation do I owe you as a human being if I make something? And that's all started because of two women who opened up a bottle of, you know, ginger beer when this thing came out. And so often, you know, when I meet people, usually I say, like, women in my gym, excuse me, the time of day I go, and um, yeah. they sidle up to me and say, oh, you're my guilty pleasure. <laughs> and I say to them, well, you need a lot more imagination, love. Or, or the thing I really go, oh, some of your cases. Right. Or them people. The them people is the most offensive one. Yeah. And the one that I think is especially ugly, but they're all those cases. And then you go, oh, clever clogs. How's about this? What's the answer to this? And you'll throw out some bonkers case. Like uh, I had a case involving the Piccadilly rats. I'm not sure if you saw it. No, no. It's one of my favorite cases. Um, um, Please work. Right. Just for. And I think that we are being invaded by the planet, whomever it is, that's trying to interfere. I'm, do you ever have the sort of, do you ever believe that you get up on a Monday morning and somehow <laughs> the universe is conspiring to interfere exactly with you, you in some way? <laughs> it's sort of somehow playing tricks on you in a way which is that, that, that's what's happening right now whilst I'm, okay, come on. Okay, work. I keep getting this thing going, this thing is not supported by, okay, just, yes, we're in business. Right. No, we're not. Yes, we are. Okay. Um, God, so, just about, so other, what I'm worried about is we're going to, because it's not going to charge. Okay. Yeah, no worries. Okay, just forgive me. No, it's all fine. You can edit it all out. <laughs> would have been your most difficult? No, don't worry. Um, well, as long as I wasn't more difficult than Gary Lineker, I'm fine. <laughs> um, no comment. Um, well, no, Gary Lineker was the other, Gary, Gary, Gary Lineker was the other way. He he turned up twenty minutes early before I was even ready. I just got. Oh, eat. don't say that to me. <laughs> I mean, you're, gonna, you're trying to kill me. I mean, that's just the, um, yeah. Gary, I just got a, I got an email saying Gary Lineker is waiting in the Zoom room. I'm like, I'm not going to talk to him for twenty minutes. I'm not even in the Zoom room. Yet. No, he's, um, he's a good. Uh, ah yes we're sorted hurrah right um yeah so i had a case involving um this band 
They're a brilliant band. Well, that's not fair. They're, they're a, a busking group who used to appear outside of uh, Manchester Piccadilly Station. And there's three of them that could really play. And their whole kind of gimmick was that they had these two, sadly now one's passed away, these two, um, one was an 80-year-old, 82-year-old, one was a 76-year-old street dancer. And they used to dance a bit like Bears from the Happy Mondays to get the crowd in. Anyway, the 72-year-old was a manager and entered the rest of the group in Manchester Battle of the Bands, which is a big old deal, you know, that part of the world. And they were good. They got to the final um, without telling the rest of, excuse me, without telling the manager, the rest of the group conspired that they were going to pull this stunt, was going to tip them over the line. And, you know, this is what was going to get them really seen. They were going to get the 80-year-old to put on a lime green mankini and come out dancing, you know, if they got to the final. As I say, they duly get to the final only it's dark and the um, 80 year old has a wardrobe malfunction. So the bit that's supposed to be covering, well, uh, his manhood ends up on his head and he doesn't have the best eyesight. And of course he comes out dancing much to the hilarity of the audience, but of course they're, they're disqualified for outraging the public decency. They could have got arrested to be honest. Um, but the 70, the 70 year old street dancer who'd managed the band and gotten there, lost the opportunity to win his share of £5,000, which would have been £1,000, right? Because they could have won, but for the stunt that these guys pulled. What's the answer to that in law? Now, the case is hilarious, right? Yeah. And don't get me wrong, I'm laughing at the (laughs) video with the blurred bit, the very small blurred bit. But then you ask people, okay, what's, what's... What's the answer in law? No, that's a tough one. That is a tough one. It's hard, right? Yeah. Um, And my point always is, even when you think that the law, that the cases are a bit silly, that the law and deciding what's right can be enormously um, challenging and interesting. Mm Yeah, I mean, there's that one. I mean, you might not be able to t- tell us, but there's that one that one case that springs to mind. I always wondered what mm-hmm. happened. Oh, and yeah. um, there was the person that. Um, he had throat cancer or something um mm. and, and there was uh and he'd owed his friend money or something and he he asked and you asked for permission to look at his medical records to, to see what happened to get the final sort of solution yes. behind it but i don't what happened with that case i have to tell you i don't that was some time ago yeah you know i can remember in a day so so try i my brain is a a barrister's brain and yeah. it's learned it's not mm. you're not born with it so, you know, I can speed read a novel in, a, in an hour sometimes. Oh, wow. And in the morning, I'll, yeah, people say, oh, you've got this marvellous brain. Yeah, try sleeping with it. <laughs> um, so what will happen is I'll remember all of the facts and then they disappear literally sort of out of my ear right. as quickly as a Eurovision song contest song. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They're, ju- they're just there in order for you to sit with the quiet musical trauma and then they've got. Um, so I, I rarely remember cases, but I, do you know what? It's as you jog my memory, I do remember that particular person. Um, I do not know what happened after after that. Because you invited me back, didn't you? You sort of said, you know, will you come back if I invite you back? But nothing sort of, we didn't know what happened, really. I don't know, and I've got to be very careful. Yeah, but I course. do believe that depending on... That, that if he did not take the opportunity to come back, which we would have undoubtedly honoured in every conceivable sense and encouraged, mm-hmm. 
that uh, that would speak for itself in terms yeah. of yeah and yeah. I, but i yeah, i, no, I don't yeah. remember but i t- i mean we, you know it, it's important to take those cases incredibly seriously of course yeah i mean so how did the show sort of start because you were sort of writing writing as well right was this how you you sort of pitched the idea sort of yeah. randomly i mean i mean the answer is you know i didn't apply to be on the telly mm-hmm. i mean not in 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 any way whatsoever um I was doing, um, you know, sort of, well, I say sort of serious law. Yeah. So um, uh, the, the, the potted history of it is, you know, I was at a good set of chambers. Um, one day I cross-examined a police officer in a way which it, uh, things have changed at the bar, but solicitors then were very influential. You know, when I cut my teeth in, I started when I was, I was a barrister, working barrister at 21, 22. Too young, yeah, for sure. sure. Yeah. Um, but, you learn judgment quickly. And um, often I didn't look like I do now. People would walk past and go, oh, look, I got the child. And I was taught by one of the best in the business. And I would do sometimes six or seven cases a day. Having the gift of meeting every single person from every conceivable background. And I got a big break because I cross-examined a police officer and the solicitor watching was very influential and said, I'm going to start giving you, you know, more and more cases. That's how it worked. The solicitor send the case to the barrister. Mm-hmm. So very quickly, early on, rather, I was doing quite serious work and then eventually was doing work in Birmingham, representing gang members chiefly. And then in some extremely high profile gang cases only ever defending um and then um the long and short of it is i ended up uh, becoming a bit of a specialist in international financial criminal law which is things like money laundering and, and how you know but defending those cases and then i ended up being asked to um prosecute a case abroad for the foreign office where in the Turks and Caicos Islands. I would have careful what I say about that because 10 and a half years later, that case is still ongoing. But where the government was suspended for what at the time was corruption um, and uh, the UK in effect reimposed direct rule from London. We were going to bring an investigation and a trial of that ex-government. And what they wanted was a bunch of poachers turned gamekeepers because what I'd been doing for the better part of a decade was knocking cases down. That was my thing. It's your job, you know, not just to do it gratuitously, but to ensure that the prosecution proves its case, but really taking detailed technical points. Um, And so the model that they built in the Tuts and Caicos Islands was let's get a bunch of people that spent their time doing that sort of thing, being thorns in our side to build the case and see how, you know, uh, and, and, in order to do whatever is possible to uh, secure the integrity of the trial in due course, to lead the investigation from the beginning. And it sounded fabulous, except I had no idea where the Turks and Caicos was. I was at this interview and thinking, what is the Turks and Caicos? The only reason I vaguely remembered it is because when I was little, I used to keep meticulous records of Miss World. Right. And, um, you know, my brother used to connect Panini football stickers. You know, Oh, yeah, was, yeah. I used to. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I did as well, but you know, people used to keep them in order of teams. I used to collect them in order of attractiveness. I think I had a whole book of of Jan Molby's once. He has yeah. the page where it's um, 
David Ginola. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was a grown up by the time David P played. Oh, really? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I never. Do you remember his poor little face when France won the World Cup? Yes. Yeah. Um, I've never. I've got this as a segue. Um, so I speak for it. I've never understood why. Um, who was the Who was the manager that 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 said that he'd committed a crime? When he had crossed the board, do you remember he didn't make the, the French squad because he'd um, he'd fallen out with the manager. Uh, I'm trying to think. Who anyway, it was now. yeah, but I don't. Anyway, I've subsequently met him. He's he's just as I mean, very unusual. You see, you've got to be very careful when you look at. He's aged incredibly well. Normally, when somebody's that beautiful, that young, you know, I always warn off my girlfriends. Just think about what it's going to look like in ten years. A bit like a you know, a house in France, the roof will fall off and then you'll be stuck with it. Um, so I didn't know where the Taxi Caicos was, uh, but it was a desert island. And um, it was fascinating work. But, you know, I'm not one thing and I hope any all of your listeners are and I hope you aren't either, you know. Mm-hmm. You're a collection of different ambitions and, you know, there are people who are specialists and monomaniacal about certain things, but I think most of us enjoy being present in the great buffet of life. And for me, writing and doing other stuff was important to me. And loads of my friends were out of work actors. So I thought, well, I'll try and bring back Crown Court. And I had this idea. And again, part of my innumerable privileges is knowing people in different fields yeah so i came back to the uk and did a case in defending in a case in croydon and fast forwarding again i was pretty low i'd built this is the first time i prosecuted in any serious way and then having come back to defend i think it's fair to say that i'd lost the capacity lost the ability to invest the energy the currency to carry on defending. In order to get up every day and to do that work, you have to believe in the system and believe in the work that you're doing. It's exhausting. All work, whatever it is, you know, depletes you in some way. Mm. But it has to have at its core, either because of colleagues or because of the work you're doing, the capacity or the potential, not to be delighted every day, but to re-gift you the the possibility of replenishing whatever capital you've lost and I was just depleted just absolutely miserable and I use the word depressed on purpose because I was yeah um not sad depressed um and I went to flog randomly this thing with a couple of um tv producers who were still friends and the woman looked at it and I think she said it was the worst thing she'd ever read she gave it her sort of aggressively undivided indifference. Um, but I really liked her because she was <laughs> no bullshit. Yeah. And for television, Lawrence, that's... That's huge, right? Yeah. Not huge. It's extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, I've come to discover, you know, in law, my world is good, bad, yes, no, it's done, it's not done. There's nothing more aggravating to me. I don't care if somebody hasn't done something. I care when somebody says it's in the pipeline. hmm well, I've just the answer is no, you haven't done it. And I, I don't mind, just tell me. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I can't, I mean, of course, the world is, that doesn't apply to feelings, which are complex and grey and different shades of colour. But doing things, it's yes or no. I haven't, yeah. um, or making a decision, yes or no. Um, and if you're not sure, here are my five reasons why I'm not sure, but I'll get back to you by Thursday at 10. 
and one minute to ten, which is why obviously where we met, I was a bit late. One minute <laughs> to ten, you 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 have your answer. I mean, in television and in media and in a number of other fields as well, I've come to discover, especially in corporate environments, what I've realised is different when you're at the bar because you're self-employed. So it's unthinkable for you to behave in this way. You know what happens is that people go to meetings and it's all of this political positioning. So nobody wants to make a decision. What actually happens is people uh, manoeuvre themselves to take responsibility in the event that things go super well, or the credit, and to divest themselves of, of any of the accountability in the event that things are a disaster. Okay. Which of course, but then it's me. So I walk into this going, so I met this woman who's the opposite of that. She's unusual eccentric mm. at the time called Helen Warner, brilliant. Um, and she'd written a bunch of chiclet novels, as she self-describes them. I read all novels. I don't care, you know, what they're... I think anybody's thoughts are interesting as long as they're vaguely literate. Um, well, I mean, it's one of those things where you may read the brochure, but you're not going on the package holiday, put it that way. I was surprised by a lot of it. Um, and I sent her an email because she delighted me. I just liked... I like that sort of forthright, direct sort of person. Yeah. You know, and uh, she said it was really lovely to meet you. I hate your idea, but there's a bloke in Manchester called Tom who wants to make an arbitration show. Would you be up for it? And at the time, it coincided with me being, as I say, um, incredibly flat, depressed, um, and questioning sort of everything. Mm -hmm. And so I said, sure. Went to meet him, and normally from the germ of the idea. Uh, of a thing to putting someone on telly that's never been on telly before takes years as they focus group you and goodness knows what else she put it on in five months with no pilot in the death slot in august and i didn't believe any of this was happening you see it's just in my because i'd taken a case in jersey where i was advising the government on their disclosure obligations in their big independent um historical abuse uh, inquiry and as I say, I then ended up in Jersey as a court, my name on it. I thought, what's going on? Yeah. And then all of a sudden it captured the public imagination. Mm -hmm. But a series of random events and luck and uh, the universe conspiring to change things. And I'm always mindful of that. And I, I don't, listen, it doesn't happen to everybody, but I, I, I think about it now in the context of lockdown and, context of sometimes when I get emotionally stuck or listening and hearing others one of the challenges that we face when we feel bleak or dark is the full sense of permanence it's often true if you've got a health challenge but in mental health sometimes just and I've learned this through my own therapy and reading and thinking about it is that idea of okay I'm really uh, my anxiety is high I'm feeling really flat, is having the confidence or the space, very difficult though it can be, not to sit with a catastrophe, but to understand that I'm feeling like this just for now. Mm -hmm. And there remains present the possibility that life can quite literally change on a dime. And that a year's time, the whole complexion, the whole landscape of the universe and what you're doing, as long as you invest a little bit too, can radically change and lockdown has kind of gifted us that as a thought too mm -hmm. you know 13 months ago blink of a human eye the idea of permanence the idea of what our lives look like how they were curated through the day 
totally different. And so often there's that sense where we, if we can sit patiently, I think, with um, how we feel and think, okay, I'm feeling this just for now, yeah. maybe tomorrow. I, I found that really useful. And, that, and that's what happened with the show. And, and it's been a useful lesson moving forward through life when things have gone wrong or there've been challenges or problems to think, okay, yeah, tomorrow is a new day. And I'm, you know, there's another opportunity around the corner. Yeah. Do you think about, you know, having that beating those depressive feelings as well is about sometimes what you let into your space as well. Because I mean, like the, the news at the minute, I, I've had to stop watching the news, especially sort of around the back end of last year. And we kind of had lots of things happen at the same time where we had not just COVID, but, you know, there was the worry that we we're going to like leave the EU without a deal. Uh, we had like the outrage of the Black Lives Matter protesting and the division there that was caused. And um, it was, everything was Donald Trump saying what now, you know, and, you know, all these kind of things happen at the same time. And it was mm-hmm. just, even this week, you know, with the awful news about this Sarah, that's Sarah yes. Evard, that's, that made me Very so, nice. it's made me so sad and so angry. And it's, but you know, it, it, the news, it, you kind of got to be mm-hmm. careful what we leave let into our spaces sometimes, because it can affect us. We're not, it's more than being careful. We have to be brave enough and courageous enough to, and active enough to curate the news that we allow in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's impossible to help because what you're talking about is the news, but it's the bad news. Yeah. Isn't it a fascinating feature of, I'm increasingly convinced, human nature that I could tell you, Lawrence, you know, um, nine good things about you and say, well, but at the same time, I'm not entirely sure about that zip top hoodie. <laughs> yeah. And you'd walk away tomorrow going oh he said I was intelligent and listened very well and all that stuff but that's what you'd remember yeah and that we are almost predisposed to absorb the negative and the dark and how easily or how much more permeable we are to darkness than light Mm -hmm. despite it being everywhere around us you know um and of course we have to know what's going on but uh, how much of the news that you're referring to in the same day of every single item on the news that we were that you're referring to the the horror of the beginning of the um pandemic there were responses all around the world and people attending everyday thousands to react bravely and courageously to show up on the front line regardless um in the horrendous situation that we saw on the weekend um and the murder that you're referring to you know there are i i I have this gift of being able to go and listen and speak to young officers the number of brave young women officers as well of um women officers uh, young officers um especially from um different communities um women of color that are now joining the police force in order to change the police force i mean how dynamic and thoughtful they are. There are good news stories everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think about some of the work I've done on the Holocaust, for example, and I go to speak to the Holocaust Education Trust. There are Holocaust ambassadors from every community, from Muslim communities, from communities beyond the reaches of uh, the Jewish community in places like Tyson, where individuals have taken personal responsibility to go out and tell and become, tell the stories of the Shoah, the, the Holocaust, and become personal witnesses. Good news stories everywhere. 
It's about what we choose to bring into to our work, but it's freaking hard. I sat with, I got COVID uh, I didn't know in this. March. Oh, wow. Yeah, last March. Um, and sorry if I'm banging on, by the way, do you tell me to shut no, up? No, 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 it's interesting. Oh, um, I got this really good gig, right, which was, um, I got the chance last year to go to Namibia with uh, Comic Relief. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. Um, and I don't think I've talked about it in any real re- de- real detail, but seeing as, you know, I was late, I'll give you, <laughs> I'll tell you. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, the last minute, it was moved from Mongolia because it was the beginning of the lockdown. And they were worried that China, which borders Mongolia, as you know, was going to shut the country down. Um, and the organizers moved it to Namibia and it was going to be across the desert race. I don't read the small print because I'm just thrilled to do anything. And as a so-called person of the public eye, you get such disproportionate praise and privilege for doing bugger all. I'm like, just please to show up. Tell me what you want. And I'm there. Yeah. The only thing that troubled me a bit on this one was that I'm sometimes conscripted or cast into events a little bit, I'm not saying it's true in this case, but you can see it from time to time with people with what you might describe as a kind of low level um, homophobia, or rather that expectation that it's a fitness event, let's get Rob Rinder in because he's going to yelp like a highly strung poodle or be John Inman on steroids. Right. Do you know what I mean? And of course, not only am I fit, but I, you know, I've run several. Doesn't matter for that, uh, well, but yeah, but I mean, you're 255 marathon yeah. and, you know, uh, 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 fitness is absolutely the kind of in- integral feature of how, not just my, my life, but uh, uh, the way in which I curate or manage my mental health is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, also what matters to me is um, nobody externally gets to determine my narrative or who I am, right? So when they put me in the ice bath, waiting, as I say, for me to yelp like a highly strung poodle, I, you can see it. So I sort of asked for a cigarette and a glass of wine because <laughs> screw you. Yeah. You know, how dare you come with predetermined, preloaded expectations of who I am based upon your flawed perception of who I am without knowing me. It's a good lesson for how we meet everybody, right? Yeah, right. And again, part of the way in which we talk about those subconscious biases that we have with people, um, which are true and real. Anyway, so running across Namibia, I thought, great. Um, And it was one of the greatest gifts of my life. And I didn't realise it would be... um, on day two, I got, um, I, uh, 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 I was running very fast. And to be fair, the other, apart from Louise Minchin, who's a badass triathlete, mm-hmm. um, I mean, she's a, just extraordinary, her mind. But she got injured on day two. So I was out on my own and it, there was a moment in the day, which I've never had before or after, and I feel sure I won't achieve again. You know, people talk about being in the moment. Yeah. And often that's the type of thing where they've, I often feel it's inauthentic or somehow they've sort of read some fifth rate self-help book (laughs) and they've imagined what that is. And, you know, it's the eye roll to end all eye rolls and the shoulder shrug to end all shoulder shrugs. And all right, look, Um, until you experience it. So I'm running across this desert and 
it's sort of biblical insofar as there's nothing to look at because it's so vast but one color and 40 degrees that you end up going inward and I wasn't thinking about what was happening in front of me or behind me I was just consciously thinking of the breath and being present and uh, it helped I had nine Mahler symphonies a bunch of Dolly Parton and some One Direction and the Out of Africa theme tune came on um, you know the it's John Barry, isn't it? Yeah. And um, I just burst into tears. It was floods of tears. And I can't explain it, but it was something about just being present. And anybody that will know me knows uh, I don't cry easily, mm. ever. And I'm not ashamed of that. It's just difficult to be connected in that way for me. Mm. It was so moving. And it was beautiful. And I came back and I think about 11 of us went or something and nine of us got COVID. Um, and I was sitting on my sofa and you've got to bear in mind that exactly as you're describing, nobody really knew what this was. People mm -hmm. thought that it was a kind of, uh, a kind of almost uh, Daniel Defoe plague. Daniel Defoe was a diarist, not diarist, excuse me. He was, he wrote about the, 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 Great Plague in 1665. And all I could see, and I had the news on all day, were satellite pictures of pars in Iran and Italy. And I could feel, as this news was coming in, my anxiety level going up. But not just going up, I was, and I, it, it absolutely interfering with my, my health, mm -hmm. is the simplest way of putting it. So I had pretty ugly symptoms in, in week two, not hospitalised. But some of that, I feel sure now, looking back at it, having been through it, was connected to the way in which this news was interfering or affecting my emotional response. Yeah. You know, um, when you're in a heightened state of anxiety, it undoubtedly interferes with your capacity, not just to have good mental health, it interferes with every facet of your response. Um, and so like you, I just stopped, I just turned off the news. Because mm -hmm. um, what's the point? Yeah, well, they talk about stress as well, stress just being so damaging to your health. Like, I don't think we oh. sort of know how, some people are, don't realize how much stress can affect us. It, you know, it's caused, it causes mm. so many health issues. We do. I mean, I've seen it. I've seen it in work and we know, I mean, there are some good studies. I, I take the trouble. Um, I'm a non, non, not only am I not a know-all, I you know, love being present around people that know everything. I'll sit and listen to people talking with authentic enthusiasm about broccoli. <laughs> I mean, literally, if, it, yeah. if they love it. And it's like, so interesting when somebody's delighted about something. Yeah. But it's interesting you talk about stress and um, physical health, and there's lots of studies on this now. Mm -hmm. um, and how it, it affects every facet of how we respond, both in terms of our mental and physical health. Um, and there's undoubtedly um, an effect and reaction. Of course there is. Yeah. Um, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's how we mitigate it or how we cope with it that matters. Yeah, and one of I mean one of the most fascinating programs I've watched recently was you was it the program um, Who Do You Think You Are and sort of looking at the the Holocaust past of your family and your your granddad in particular and there's that lovely that yeah it choked me up a bit when you met her was it your granddad's friend Ben yeah That's that right. that really I mean what was that whole experience like for you just uh, 
you know, mm. going, being in, being in those, being on, visiting those sites, I suppose. Yeah, it's complete. It's a complicated one. Um, it was an ultimate. It was a, a huge privilege, as you know. I went on to make two more documentaries: mm-hmm. um, "The Holocaust, My Family, and Me." Um, and this is a, a kind of big conversation. Um, you know, being the grandchild of a Holocaust survivor, who I knew, I grew up with four of my two of my grandparents are still alive in the late nineties. That their legacy, their their presence, their being was sort of inescapable. And so, you know, you talk about stress and endurance and all of that sort of thing. You know, when you've been alongside and somebody's been so critical in your life, who's touched the face of tyranny, been there, been a slave, a slave, stood in the cold, known of the trauma of their two parents, and four sisters and a brother being murdered. That ultimately is the thread that informs your tapestry in some way, right? Mm-hmm. And it was amazing, you know, standing on that ground. And I know Sir Ben, I've got his called you, your listeners get a chance to listen to his Desert Island Discs. It's, it's worth it. He's an extraordinary person. Like all of the other survivors, and I mean everyone I've ever met. They don't hold on to a single iota of hate or of a thirst for revenge. And when you're around them, it's like this sort of collection of joy. It's a Jewish word, simcha. So in Jewish tradition, you're supposed to, um, let's say somebody dies, you're supposed to mourn for 12 months, unless you've already booked a party. And the reason for that is because there's so few opportunities for joy mm-hmm. that you've got to delight in every moment of it. And that's what they're like as this family. And Ben is that person. And standing on that ground, a number of things happen. First of all, what you can't see, and it really mattered, was I was freezing. And there I am on that ground thinking my grandfather was there wearing nothing but rags in minus five, I think it was. And just the type of cold that gets to your bones that you'd give and pay anything to make it stop. Mm. Day after day, week after week, month after month. What did that mean in terms of survival? Did it mean to feel and experience that? Just to have that sense of experience. The other thing about it is, you know, again, it's a big topic, but There are lots of sites like this, these dark shadows dotted about the whole of Europe. People know Auschwitz, it's a curated museum, and they've heard of it, and often they interchange Auschwitz and the Holocaust. There are hundreds of these places on the ground, on our earth. And what's amazing is that as we stood on that ground where my grandfather was a slave, um, there was just the jagged suggestion of what was there, little bits of concrete, but of course, like a Gaelic force, that's nature responding. It's been blanketed over by forest, uh, uh, as if nature has hidden what took mm. place. And that moment that you saw with um, Sir Ben, when he touched my face, the profundity of it wasn't standing on that earth, although that was a gift to be sure. It's also when he held my hand and said, okay, let's walk out together. And you just imagine 
75 years before that he was able to hold my hand and we were able to walk out of that place together. Amazing. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's an extraordinary um, thing to, 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 to have done. When you're making a program like that, you're of course mindful. It's really unwet. I always sort of struggle to describe it in a way which doesn't feel uh, pretentious or twatty, but that's, you know, an enduring problem in my mm-hmm. life. Um, the kind of macro story, what I mean by that is the big historical story you want to share and include with everyone. It's a critical historical event. How can we make everybody feel included in that story? And that, of course, I'm mindful of. But at the same time, there's a very micro, it's a very personal complexion going on. So as I'm discovering more and more about my grandfather's life, you know, where I knew the outlines, the dark outlines, but not the colour. Yeah, I was going to say, was he able to talk about it much, your grandfather? It never comes out in one story. Nobody sits down who's a survivor and says, one day this happened. (laughs) It could be in behaviours. So when he died, albeit in some relative comfort, dotted about the place were um, little handkerchiefs with food, the backs of cupboards, etc. Think about that when yeah. you, next time you say, I think I'm hungry. What does it mean to know what hunger is? Well, there's your evidence. Um, certain stories that he would tell about not pushing yourself forward because... Uh, about openness, he'd, certain, he'd, he'd connect them in some way. My grandfather's best friend was um, a man called Murphy, who was a six foot three guy who I think he was originally from Jamaica. It's an amazing <laughs> um, guy. And they were, my grandma used to call them Ichel and Michel. My, my grandfather was five foot three. And they used to sort of go everywhere wow. together. My grandfather used to, I mean, a proper eccentric. We'd go on holiday, take me and my brother, just the two of us. And, uh, and get bored during the day. So we'd be in some terrible place in Bournemouth and um, he'd go and get a job in a Greg's or he'd go and visit a mosque for the afternoon. I mean, really. <laughs> but I, 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 mean, I tell you that because he had this sort of enduring open-mindedness. And I don't mean that virtue open-mindedness, not the type of stuff you have to say. Mm-hmm. I'm open-minded or I'm not. Th-. When people say those sorts of things, people tell you, they're probably not. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I know what you mean. Yeah. So when people tell you they're charitable, you know, actually the people who are really charitable don't tell you that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, he, he never told you the story in, in that sort of linear narrative, just little bits of the puzzle, if you like. And to that extent, what a gift it was to hear various things. So in the huge thing you are talking about, it turned out, as you know, the historian was showing me around this building. His grandfather and my grandfather had been best friends and I had no idea. But this building spoke. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been teaching in lockdown uh, primary school kids, nine to 11, um, Tudor history, which I'm really interested in, right? And uh, I love the best way to do it, really, if you get a chance, go with the parents, go with the kids to the Tower of London. We can get them really excited by is this idea that if you're standing in the Tower of London, you can just squint enough and look at a brick and crowd out the noise of the flight path on the way to, you know, Heathrow of the planes going over. That brick was precisely the same colour 
same texture as a brick that, let's say, Anne Boleyn looked at on her way to the scaffold. Mm -hmm. So to that extent, this object has this imprint of human memory that we share. And you can look and touch at things and they're like little time machines, right? And in the case of this building that had all the original wood and all of these lung butter yellow lights that were exactly as they were when my grandfather had played, I was fascinated by this. Then this guy sat down and his grandfather had kept a periodical about life in that place. And I knew nothing about my grandfather's family. So he would have one sentence, or he might read out one sentence. Eli Melech, that's my grandfather's father, uh, was small in stature, but high in hopes, darting about the place. Before that moment, I knew nothing but a name. And every word, every verb, darting about, small in stature, was like a universe of life. It was like breathing life, soul, back into this person that was otherwise a statistic, yeah. you know, a far, nothing more. Um, and that was an amazing gift to bring back to um, my family. About 20 years before, I actually, they say on the programme, I had gone back with my grandfather when he was alive. And it was just at the moment where, in fact, the factory where he'd been enslaved um, was still operating, interestingly. Mm -hmm. And there was this amazing moment, which is one of the real seminal moments of my life, although I was not old enough, I think, at the time to appreciate it. So I retrospectively, I think, experienced it, you know, as we often do when we rethink about stuff that happens through a more mature prism, through a more mature prism. Um, we went back and this building was in the beginning or middling stages of a decay. And we walked up the stairs and he looked through the window and said, oh, that's the wallpaper I had. And as we were coming down, um, there was this woman there. And I was there with my mom and my brother. And uh, um, she looked at him and he touched her on the shoulder. I don't think they spoke. It was a moment of human connection that lasted, I don't know maybe in less than a minute. And they walked off. And it turned out that that woman was the daughter of the only non-Jewish family in that building full of people. And she had no idea that he'd survived. And there he was standing there with his grandsons and his daughter. And, and in that moment, of connection, it was almost where kind of prose ends and poetry begins. There's a moment of human connection. It doesn't matter whether you're a person of faith, it doesn't matter what, whatever your background is, it's where the divine is, that sense of something beyond the physical, yeah. where they said everything and nothing there was too much to say. So she looked at him and he touched her. And in that, I don't know, 30 seconds, they'd said everything. 
and I reflect on that a lot. Actually. Yeah, no, I can I can imagine. And it, you know, it, I mean, it is baffling. You get you get people that are the Holocaust deniers, and you know, and I, I only bring it up because it does make me angry. And it, it, I don't know if it's because <laughs> if it's like a a lack of education thing, and it's always the same people that have conspiracies about most things, you know, in general. But this is this isn't you know, was there another shooter on the grassy knoll, JFK? This is something that affected millions of people. I mean, mm-hmm. have you had to? Have you ever had that conversation with someone that's been a Holocaust denier, like? So I've been lucky, right? I, let, let's start with the good news, seeing as we're on that topic, Lawrence. Yeah. Right. So that that um, who do you think you are, right? Mm-hmm. I was by far. In fact, I'm looking to my right because I've got the TV guide of for all the other people that were doing that series. I was by far and away the least famous, well-known person, and yet more than something like two million people more watched my episode. They weren't watching it for me. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Not a peep of anti-Semitism on social media. The subsequent two documentaries, The Holocaust of My Family, meet over 7 million people. Hardly any, hardly any um, anti-Semitism or Holocaust denial on social media at all. And the BBC take that stuff seriously, right? Mm-hmm. It's a thirst to know, to share, to witness, to want to be good. So let's be clear, although there is the shadow that you're talking about, not only is it small, but for every one person that uh, is infected by the darkness of the conspiracy theories that you're talking about. There are a hundred that have the courage to stand up against it. So let's not disproportionately give them the presence, the credit and the voice. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the bad news story. It's very important to remember that. Mm -hmm. But you see, um, you know, um, I I, I never get angry because my grandfather never got angry. There's no point. Mm -hmm. Anger doesn't help. One of the things that does alarm me, however, and there are amazing organisations like Holocaust Education Trust and various people that are working um, to combat Holocaust denial, is that um, the, it's now become part Holocaust denial, Holocaust equivalency and all of those sorts of things. It, it's moved beyond the realms of well, let's put it this way. People that hold those views or held those views very often can't be changed because it doesn't sit in the logical cortex of their brain. And that's increasingly true of how people interact with each other. In other words, you and I might passionately disagree about an issue. We could have an argument and I would deploy some facts and you'd uh, have your arguments which would include your point, your example, and your conclusion. And we'd agree to disagree and we'd walk off and perhaps have a drink. And that was, I think, very often how people would interact with each other. When you're talking about conspiracy theory and when you're talking about um, Holocaust denial and increasingly other issues too, that doesn't sit in the logical cortex of the brain anymore. It's governed... I'm more sure than ever in the part of the mind where the emotion is governed and consequently where identity sits. And so you're not really having a discussion. It doesn't matter what facts I tell you. You've got, as some people dangerously describe, counterfacts, and they're widely available. And what's more, if I attack your point of view with logical argument, however true those facts are, whatever evidence I deploy at you, I say deploy, what I share with you, it doesn't land. I'm attacking your identity. In which case, 
I'm not listening anymore. And that, of course, has been dialed up in the most frightening and I think corrosive way by social media. But there are two elements and two ways of responding to that. The first is a positive one. Um, I used to work doing big old cases, right? And I used to bring cases down by alleging conspiracy, right? The police are all at it, blah, blah, blah. And without going into it too much, over the years, I ended up advising in big old cases and stuff. And you, when you're on the other side of the table and you realise, I'm taking it out of the Holocaust example now, that there are no conspiracies. It's just a bunch of people doing their very best. And from time to time, you know, you get people that collude and they've probably broken the law and I don't excuse that, but it's mostly cock-up, not conspiracy. Mm. Boy, is that a frightening thing. Boy, is it frightening to be in the room as the lawyer when somebody's asking a very important question and you're looking around behind you thinking, well, asking me is a very serious question. Um, and it's a moment of becoming an adult, but it's a very frightening one. People would much rather believe that there were organized elites governing the world rather than having to surrender to the terror of it just being a chaotic series of events led by people who were sort of muddling through and doing their best, mm -hmm. regardless of their political complexion. Of course, that's a, it, it's actually, there's a comfort in believing there's a shadowy elite, <laughs> you know. And yeah. yes, there are elites and there are people that do things which are bad. And yes, there are some conspiracies. But it makes sense to me why you'd want to have that thirst to believe. Yeah, it's like everything, isn't it? It's like, it's like whether it be, you know, the Holocaust, COVID, 9-11. It's something so sure. terrible. It's like there must be more to it. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. But the other thing is how we engage and how we respond. And this is the second point, which is really important. That, um, that's why I felt very strongly about the documentary I made, the second one, Holocaust, My Family, Me, and, and, and the work that I'm hopefully going to go on to do around the Middle East and a lot of the issues you're talking about, which is to say, look, I'm not going to change your mind. It's held in your identity, you believe this. And now what's more, you can find 50 shades of different evidence, your, your counterfact, so to speak. So what I'm gonna do is honor you enough as a human being to meet you with goodwill, no matter how wicked I believe your view to be, how wrong, how damaged, how dangerous even. And say, firstly, that I'm gonna honor you enough by saying, I hear you. I think that matters. I think it matters to another person to say, you've been hurt, because that's important to them. It's important in a conversation. And then to say in a large throat king, look, here are the facts. So at least you've got them out. And then to say, I'd just like to share a story with you. And often that can be the most powerful agent of change. So in the case of the Holocaust, what HET does, the work that I make and other people, and there are so many heroes out there, I'm not included amongst them, is to just tell the story and walk off. I'd like to tell you the story of Marianne Cohen, 
21-year-old who went and rescued Jews, and this is what she did, and this is what she saw. And here's her diary, and here's a photograph. And what a courageous person she was. Because I believe, you know, that most people confronted by a moral choice of real significance want to cast themselves on the right side of history. They want to believe that they'd be heroic and courageous. People want to be that person. Mm -hmm. And if you can tell them stories that force them to elevate themselves to that person, they're like more likely to act with courage and truth. So I think as we're advocating um, against conspiracy theory, against Holocaust denial, it really matters to tell the stories. It matters not to shout. It matters not to come to that person that's arrived in that dark place with angry judgment because it doesn't help, it doesn't change. In fact, it's likely to make the person more entrenched because the fact that you've got angry is yet another example in an adult mind of proof of why you're yet more part of that conspiracy. You see, that's an aggressive response. He's trying to hide something. So I think one of the things we need to get better at is becoming more, not just knowing more, but becoming more emotionally articulate in how to be effective advocates. And I feel sure that part of that is hearing, um, deploying facts, and then saying, let me tell you this story. And like I say, moving it out of the Holocaust space, you know, I used to represent, because you don't have a choice, I emphasize and I hope I would only tell this story, and it's important you include this in your podcast. As a barrister, it's called the cab rank rule. It is absolutely um, a fundamental ethical principle. You do not get a right to turn down a case on the basis of your political point of view. Which meant that from time to time, I'm gay and Jewish, and I had to represent the National Front from time to time, or members of it mm-hmm. in criminal cases. And um, one of them said to me something sort of homophobic or something. And here's the thing the reason I laughed was because, you know, um, Lawrence, I never met somebody ever, I still haven't in life not one person. And this is after years of really being in the trenches of criminal work, as I say, representing people who, whose currency is invested in hate, that was a happy human being, you know. So this poor family, and I say poor family, imagine having residual energy at the end of the day, it's hard enough the things people have to do to, write something ugly on Twitter or on whatever the other one's called. I don't go on it. Instagram. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, 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 just imagine what sort of person you would have to be to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, these were not happy human beings. Um, you've got to always remember that that the people that are joyous and full of delight and have good things going on in their world are not people who are espousing hate and conspiracy theory. It's a type of thing that will gnaw at you. And that's what the survivors teach you as well. And so by the time I ended up in the public eye, look, you know, whatever anybody said about me, unless it was a family member or a loved one whose opinion 
mattered, mattered, I value. I was like, well, you're, you know, I know you. You're up all night wearing a moon moon chain smoking parliaments. It doesn't land, in other words, because, you know, what must your life be for you to be addled by hate in that way? How yeah. tragic and sad. And um, sadly, um, social media has really dialed that up. Also, the other thing that it's done, very frighteningly, I think, especially on Twitter and in other uh, places, is that, you know, most people don't care about social media. They're not on it all day. Overwhelmingly, they're not on it. But there is a disproportionate power that individuals have to affect, sometimes even curate, certainly influence the corporate and political response. You know, you think this is crazy. There's a tiny group of people. Yeah. And I think that's a huge problem. And, yeah. you know, politicians and corporate environments are, are guilty of that. And it's a problem. Yeah, well, so social media is a huge problem, isn't it? I mean, obviously right. Donald, Donald Trump's been taken off it now, but like people, you know, I guess his supporters would say, well, why are they taking him off? You know, they hide in something. But all that hate that he kind of spouts on Twitter, it all filters through. And if the president of the United States can say these things, it lets his supporters think it's acceptable to, to talk like that and have these views. Yeah, yeah, I think that's gross, but there's no but, there's an and. There's an and, you know? Um... Uh, 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 I um, am really worried about how exactly what we were talking about right mm -hmm. before um, what it's done and I think this is the most nefarious thing it's done is it's um, made it less able for individuals to hear and I keep using that word on purpose hear the views lived experiences of people beyond the borders of their own experience and um that's a huge problem and it's also given platform for people who are the most shouty like trump to be sure but what it's also done is um uh, 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 it, it, it's created or it's siloed people into their own political echo chambers. And so for me, there are many tragedies of it, but where whatever leadership or whatever political complexion is using language in that way, it makes it less possible for people to really try to find ways of having shared and common experience. Mm -hmm. Sorry, for them to listen and hear their common experience and that's important to me because at the moment you know most of the work i've been doing in lockdown is talking about um well access to justice and uh bear with sorry um um what really troubles me is that our country it's true in other places too is becoming less socially mobile than it ever has been. You know, I may sound like this, like I'd be mugged by a Mitford, but actually I grew up in a working class community. My dad's a taxi driver. My mum's a businesswoman who achieved extraordinary success, right? I got into chambers and blah, blah, blah. 
those worlds, access to justice, for example, social mobility, I think has never been worse and is becoming even more challenged. Your capacity to get uh, access to a lawyer if your kid, for example, has special educational needs, if you've got a housing problem, etc. All of that is determinate. All of that can be affected by your ability, not just to have sharp elbows, but to have network to a lawyer, to the financial capacity to pay that lawyer, to not be affected by authority, to be listened to and to be heard. Right? That's part of this underlying story that will, I suspect, intuitively come out in Grenfell too. You know, the communities of the ignored, right? And one of my, one of the things I'm troubled by is that that experience, that lived experience where you are um, removed at arm's length from power, from being heard, there are shared experiences, shared class experiences in Tyneside and in various communities, for example, in Lambeth. And I listen and I read those, their legal problems. So I think, gosh, you've got so much in common. And what I worry about in social media is that the poorest, those who have so much similar in terms of their lived experience of not having access to power, not having access to justice, so much similarity. And yet all of these mega powerful elites are pitting them against each other. Mm-hmm. When actually those are the communities that should be working together to be teaching us to be the lived example of how we are failing. And social media is making that far, far worse. Yeah, no, I completely, completely agree. I mean, even, even you know, seeing with Meghan Markle, that interview, that, did you watch the interview of her and Harry and Oprah? And just I did. the comments I, she's had to deal with? Yeah. <sighs> Well, it was an interesting one. Uh, my uh, editor at the Standard asked if I would stay up all night on Sunday and uh, do a leader piece. Do the leader piece. I, I do a column in the Standard, and I said absolutely not because I don't know them. Mm-hmm. It's just not my style. Yeah, I mean, I don't know these people, and I. But you know, there is one thing I want people. You know, I don't know Meghan Markle. I try to judge people based on having met them. Now, I haven't, I haven't met Prince Harry either. I care deeply that he served his country. That matters. Yeah. And I think it matters in a way that can never, ever be ignored. And we owe a debt of gratitude to... I see, can see a, a picture behind me, a court case. Yes. And that's me representing a British soldier uh, in a case where he was accused of... Um, a crime in the course of the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And um, I knew nothing about the army before then. It matters to me he was he gave service, right? Mm. So for, for that point alone, uh, I, I, I thought well, he, he's a good guy, put it that way. That, that's mm-hmm. a starting point. Um, so I wrote something very, very silly, which is this, which I, you know, because it's a jokey column, right? Um, people can, I think they've taken it... They, um, which was, I said, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sit up all night. Absolutely no way. But I'll look at the clips and I'll, I'll write what I like mm-hmm. about the Sussexes. And what I liked about them, I said, well, I like the fact that her views may not be your artisanal cup of tea. Yeah. 
But I love it when a husband who's otherwise probably a bit one dimensional and about tanks and rugby and that sort of thing, type of person I'd sit next to and go, oh, God, <laughs> you know. And then you meet the wife who's got all of this fun thing to say. I love it when somebody marries someone fabulous. And I use the word brainwashing and I said, and isn't it fabulous? Um, and then point two of the column was, you know, that uh, he was well endowed because he was ginger. Um, and you know, that was the column. And it was a silly column, yeah. of course. But, you know, I think I said something about Greg Rutherford, who's a friend, mm -hmm. having a, a ginger stem dingle dongle, which is a bit like the hammer throw. Um, you know, and that's what gave him his extra <laughs> inches in the, uh, in, in the long jump. It was stupid and silly, right? And um, the next morning, my editors called and said, look, you have to rewrite this piece because obviously nobody was aware of the extent of just what uh, 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 Megan was going to disclose. Um, and at first, my response was kind of cross. And it was cross because um, I think sometimes we stop yeah, there's a, an element of um, who can be the most outraged and the most serious. And whenever I think about that, you know, about not being able to laugh at stuff, I'm reminded of the, one of the last interviews that a hero of mine, Maya Angelou, gave to Anderson Cooper on CNN. It's so worth watching. It's just so beautiful. I, I watch it a lot. It's one of my happy places. And she's asked a question about the people she knew in her life from Malcolm X to Martin Luther King. And she's asked, it's a really good interview. She said, oh, you know, yes, we used to cry together, but we used to laugh together as well. And I don't trust anybody that's serious. You know, like you've got glue on the back of your hand and you say, I'm serious. <laughs> you know, that you need to kind of find the delight and the joy and stuff. And I worry that in general now, there's this terror around going up. And yet the same conversations are taking place in private. You know, I couldn't give my more undivided indifference. May they be happy and joyous. I, they look like a gorgeous couple that I'd have a great old night with. But mm -hmm. isn't it funny that he's ginger and hot? And isn't it amusing that he's now got some interesting views? Well, instead, I had to write a new piece because there was such a terror that um, uh, uh, what I'd written was um, somehow going to be ill-received. And I thought, to be fair, and I again, I it must insist you keep this in, it's important. Yeah. Once I had appreciated, again, I didn't watch it, once I'd appreciated what she had said, I did think it was important to write something serious. So I did the next day. And I've no comment or, or, or value judgment at all about what she had to say or the interview or the quality of it. But one thing that really did strike a chord with me and the piece that I ended up writing, and I haven't spoken about it a lot, but I've written quite a lot about it, um, was that there is a massive gender issue and it's something we're thinking about this week. And I've been mindful of this for years, not just because I was brought up by a single mark, but weirdly something that happened on Strictly, which was a real epiphany for me. I've been led by the best women lawyers of their generation. I've worked alongside women my whole career. If anything, I would say in a slightly sexist way, I would disproportionately trust more what one of my female colleagues had to say, <laughs> especially one of the senior ones because of just how much elbow and genius they'd have to have had and all of the challenges to get where they were, right? 
And so to that extent, I suppose it's a subconscious bias in favour of women in my professional life, wherever I would seek advice, certainly. But something happened on Strictly um, where I was in the car with another contestant, and I'm not going to say who, but I had this moment where I realized every single day I was going to like do the dancing and I'd put on a pair of pajama bottoms and people would go, oh, aren't you great? I could say I want to win. And they're like, oh, clapping me along, etc. And um, I look like, you know, a, 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 well, put it this way, the gay that style forgot. Nobody commented on my clothes. I was just gifted the chance to have a great old time. I'm with somebody else, a woman, incredibly bright, having exactly the same experience, allegedly. She's being asked questions about her personal life, whether she's shagging the dancer, mm-hmm. the response on social media. And it was a real moment of epiphany. And by now I'm a grown-up, right? Brought up by a single mom. You know, I've posted activist things about anti-Semitism, the same thing that women activists have posted. They're met with rape allegations every single day news anchors not just comment on what they're wearing right but again everyday attacks of um, personal violence against them and their families for having the temerity to have a political point of view um uh, you know women who are treated and valued totally differently um by virtue of not just like i say um what they're wearing but let's say they decide to divorce somebody you know uh he gets the decent narrative because especially if it's good looking person why would she want anything more than him Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter you don't need to look beyond the surface um and I definitely think, and it's an interest, it's interesting now as what's happened at the weekend, for us to kind of think as men, I think, and 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 really honestly reflect on that. Um I, I just a really silly example. I wore the same suit every single day for three years. No, let me put that again. I wore the same suit on every interview I ever did, every time. I said to one of the least women, do the same thing. Just wear the same outfit twice. It was, um, I can't remember who it was. Um, Nadia Sawala, maybe. Anyway, um, she did. And there was like a flood of like Twitter response, assuming that she was having some sort of breakdown. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can, you can look it up. And it's not, as, it's not as shallow as outfits. It's just different. Yeah. And, you know, it's not about going around going, I'm a feminist or anything of that kind. It's just about kind of thinking about the way in which, and I know it to be true, that our responses to stuff and women's lived experiences are different, both in the political arena, in the private space, and how they're experiencing the world is different. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not a politician, so people's responses to that is one thing. But just being aware and mindful of it matters. It's an important starting point. And I think the interview, I think how what's happened over the weekend and various other things is a good opportunity for us to reflect on that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I mean, you mentioned Strictly. I mean, did you have the time of your life on Strictly? Were you someone that's always interested in dancing? It looked like a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, what's not to like? I yeah. had every, I was bloody loving it. So the first, the first week I absolutely crapped myself. Um, in fact, I was thinking about it the other day, I jumped off the stage and in panic, I can't remember any of it. I was just, it was like a sort of, I've never had that before. That's sort of yeah. emotional, my mouth went dry. And then I did get nervous throughout it. But I mean, again, I was having this right old time, you know, I'd come from, dealing with difficult things you know yeah i'd been at that time looking through pages and pages of extremely difficult evidence in of, of years of historic abuse and dealing with a case in croydon where i was so deeply unhappy and such a challenging issue but all of a sudden i mean people say they put the camera for, and how does it feel to go out in front of 13 million people but did anyone die excellent i mean it was a right yeah. but then part of the reason i was able to do that was because nobody was also at the same time tweeting or writing about whether i was about my private life mm -hmm. or saying i look like a back at not that i was bothered personally myself but evaluating me about whether or not i secretly wanted to get banged by my dance punch of course it would have been something given it was a woman but you understand <laughs> yes yes right i was gifted the chance to have the best time Mm -hmm. And it was amazing. Yeah, no, absolutely looks it. Yeah, I mean, I mean to free dancing lessons. Yeah, and it, you you did you had a bit of a performing background like when you were a kid as well. Did you at the was it the National Youth Theatre that you did some work as a kid? Um, I, I did actually. No, I, I took acting fairly seriously. Um, I did National Youth Theatre when I was fourteen, and it was sort of okay. And I sort of did a play. In fact, I did Chiwetel Ejiofor, who was Julius Caesar, and. I gave it up really. I didn't have a great time there. And then it, I mean, it's not a, 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 a people could think it's like a school, like fame or something. It's just like mm -hmm. a summer thing that you do. Yeah. But I was you know, fairly talented, but not talented, talented. But, you know, I think Mars was, I'm not that clever or talented. I'm quite good at putting my goods in the shop window. It's not the same thing. Yeah. And, and I know the difference. And um, I tried to, I went back to university and uh, went back to, excuse me, I went to university and, um, it's a true story. I mean, it's not exactly as linear as this, but I mean, I auditioned for a part. I was quite good. But then I saw this other bloke audition and read the same part. I mean, that's what it sounds like. And it was like a moment. And that yeah. was Benedict Cumberbatch. And I've told that story before and it's true. It's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I stopped acting after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ju ju just to finish off, I mean, my mum yeah. is a massive fan of, of yourself and she did want me Very to ask smart you this. Woman. Well, I, well I, I promised her I'd ask you this. I'm not sure she totally believes I'm talking to you, to be honest. Um, but she, she wants me to ask you what it was like. I mean, you mentioned Greg Rutherford as well, like being woken mm -hmm. up by Michael McIntyre at, what's it, one o'clock in the morning? She, she... I'm looking at a picture of it now, in <laughs> fact, uh, which they, they did me a painting. Well, I mean, obviously they had to get permission vaguely that they were going to break in otherwise it would be a crime <laughs> yes. um so i i sort of knew vaguely they were coming but i didn't know where and in mm -hmm. fact I'd, I'd had to do some pretty difficult work that night um unrelated to the media and i wasn't gonna sleep very well so i had this great big tumbler of scotch so i was what you didn't see is i'm trying to make me up for about five minutes <laughs> and i've got terrible eyesight so i was like oh what's my auntie adele doing in my bedroom and then when I realised what was going on, it was great. I mean, except when Sweep started um, 
it's water pistol. Sooty, sooty sweep there, yeah. <laughs> right at that point, of course, they cut out all of the swearing. Um, but the best bit, the best bit, was when I met Zama Maguire from. Yes, I'm a, 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 how old are you? <laughs> I'm thirty-one. So you're too young. Yeah, but I'm I'm watching the watching the video. I mean, you you're very excited to see this guy. <laughs> I was talking to someone about this this weekend. I'm never impressed, or I'm not excited by people who are like famous now. And over the years, for a variety, you know, sort of a list, whatever, Clooney. You, you, I've met tons of people, you know, people, and in variety of walks of life. And it's not that I'm, I don't go out of my way to be unimpressed. It's just. Once you've met an actor, after the initial flush of recognition, there's so little to say. You know, <laughs> it's fine, all right. Great. Are you an interesting human being? You know, yeah. I'm not that sort of bland level, that surface level of fame, however shiny and famous it is, is not something that I feel excited by. <laughs> but I grew up in a house with no books, but telly was everything. So the people who were famous when I was a kid, even now, <laughs> are just the coolest thing ever. And, and Grange Hill was the cultural and, I suppose, almost the emotional epicentre of my childhood. And Zamo Maguire was the coolest thing ever. And I remember most things I read, you know. So it's a bit like when I first met Andy Peters. Just overjoyed. But then when Zamo came in, Lee McDonald, the poor guy, I start quoting his life back to him. I don't know if you heard, <laughs> yes, but, yeah, uh, Michael yeah. McIntyre says it's the first time that a stalker Excuse me, the first time that somebody has broken into their own stalker's house. <laughs> yeah. That must have been what it felt like for, yeah. for him. Yeah, you're telling him his date of birth and everything, weren't you? Yeah. <laughs> I know, and his star sign. And then this was when he did that job. And, his, and he, I mean, you could feel, I mean, the, poor love, his face reminded me of the first time I did my driving test, where the guy went, uh, the, the examiner went peritonitis grey and asked whether I was trying to kill us both. I failed the test, of course, by that point. <laughs> oh. Well, Rob, it's been a, a, a privilege to talk to you um, this morning. I mean, what we, what can we, are we going to see you in the courtroom again soon? I mean, what's sort of in the pipeline? Oh, <laughs> uh, there's a number of things. Um, I am going to go to America soon. We're going to hopefully make a bit of judgment out there. Let's see how that goes. Oh, great. Um, my main thing is at the moment, um, obviously, I, I, I write and I hope people read my columns. Mm -hmm. um, you can find them online. Um, most of the work that I'm making uh, moving forward, there's a bit of entertainment. In fact, as you, in fact, I'm speaking to you. I'm doing this musicals show. Okay, great. Yeah, it's on Sunday. Uh, you'll have to let me know what you think. Okay. Um, <laughs> but again, I, I just wanted to get out of the house. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'll do whatever, frankly. But most of the work I want to make moving forward um, for any of you or listeners that watched my Holocaust documentaries um, is really goes back to what we were talking about before, trying to find ways of being able to hear human stories from a full range of backgrounds, getting out of the way of them so that we get the gift and the chance of hearing how people feel and so consequently, being able to think more about why, um, rather than engaging and shouting at each other through however many characters on Twitter, being able to think or being conscripted, if you like, to think more deeply about experiences beyond our own by allowing people to tell their stories and having the courage and the 
humanity to hear them. Yeah, that's what I want to make more work. Yeah, about. amazing. Well, I can't wait to, to be watching them. And yeah, oh, thanks, love. All the best, Rob. And um, have a joyous day. Sorry, I was late. No, that's Don't absolutely be late, fine. <laughs> So yeah, there we have it. A wonderful chat there with uh, Rob Rinder, and and what a um, a guest to kick off the third series with. You know, I thought it would be hard to top the second series because you know we had the likes of Gary Lineker and Eddie Izzard on, but um, looking at the lineup we've got for the series three, you know, I, I think we might just do that. I think we've got some a really really cool series for you guys to enjoy um, this um, this time round, and uh, yeah, and you know, and, and I hope you know you guys enjoy listening to them as much as I, I enjoy making them <laughs> and a uh, big thanks to Giles my producer who helped put all this show together um please support the show in any way you can um you know support means a lot and it, it keeps us going and um thank you for everyone that's been so nice about it so far uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter. You can follow us at the Shapes of Stories on Twitter at Shapes of Stories. You can follow me on Instagram under Prestige Books. You can follow me on my Facebook page under Lawrence Prestige or our Facebook page for the podcast, The Shapes of Stories. Um, but yeah, guys, look forward to seeing you for episode two. Cheers. <laughs>